0: music mm-hmm. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I am your host, Phil, and in this episode, I was very fortunate to be able to connect with Scott Bryant Comstock, who is the president and CEO of the Children's Mental Health Network. I did not know Scott prior to this. I've connected with him through the podcasting world, and I was thankful that he was willing to give the time to have a conversation with me. I think that you'll be able to hear his passion his energy his love for the work he does come out in the way that he speaks if you want to check out more about scott you can find him at cmhnetwork.org that's their website and you can also listen to his podcast the optimistic advocate thank you so much for listening and without any more rambling here we go Uh, so Scott, thank you so much, and uh, for being willing to be a guest on our podcast. I certainly appreciate it. It's a slight change from our usual uh, interviews for people listening, partly because myself and Scott are newly familiar with each other, and yeah. we have been connected through the world of podcasting. Our connection is just through us learning and trying to grow our podcasts. We've uh, and we're in a class, and it was. Nice to see each other in the in the Zoom screens, but I happened to note, as he was talking about his podcast, and I think he it was during a piece of homework, in fact, when we were on Facebook that I noticed that you work in, with children and in the mental health world. So right. for me, that was in, immediately interesting to me because um, everyone listening will, will know this, but High Five, we focus on leadership development and team development uh, with kids and adults. Um, but we're we're really well focused in using our tools of experiential learning and education and adventure uh, models to work with in social emotional learning realms. And so I, the, for us, I think that we are attempting in this new year to try to um, accommodate the needs of so many educators out there. And we work with so many, both in the school systems, but also in this, in the summer camp and the outdoor education fields. And they're wanting help and advice. And there's going to be a point where we we hit our peak of our own ability to be able to give good advice, especially when it comes to areas around trauma. Um, and it, for me, it seems like we're going to be finding that there's a lot of uh, kids out there who are going to be impacted by what's going on in our world right now. And I think it's our job to best prepare ourselves and then also to fit the needs of the the kids that we end up working with. So I do have a few questions I'd love to be able to ask you. But before we get there, Scott, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, tell us where you're from and what you do.
1: So a little bit about me. So I have been working in the mental health space, the children's mental health space, for close to forty years now. It's been a been a been a long while, um, and it has been a fabulous career. And I'm excited about the work your organization is doing because it's actually organizations like yours that, throughout my career, we've been looking for. You know, who where where can we find people who are doing good work? And who are focused on prevention and uh, focused on making a difference in the lives of uh, children and families, because that's the the whole prevention piece and the things you're doing with High Five, so often underlooked, Mm -hmm. overlooked, and definitely underfunded. Um, But for the last, since I guess about 1986, I have been so blessed to be able to work in communities all across the United States, territories of Guam and Puerto Rico, working with communities who are interested in one thing, and that's how do we improve the services and supports for children with mental health challenges and their families. And that really has been what my work has been about. Now, a little little background to that in um, uh, the federal government has been funding these what are called system of care grants. Vermont is one of the early pioneers in the system of care movement, with a uh, one of the original CASP grantees, which was the Child Adolescent Service System Program grants. Anyway, these were federal grants, all really focused on, hey, how do we improve things? How do we make it better so that families can get what they need? One of the stipulations that the federal government, way back in 1992, put in place was that. If you were going to receive federal funding, you needed to go through a review process where, so if you had a six-year grant, year two and year four, reviewers would come out to do an assessment of how your community was progressing. I was one of those reviewers mm-hmm. and, and have, uh, um, gosh, it's just an a, an amazing blessing. I, th- I think I've been in 48 of the 50 states, wow. uh, plus Guam and Puerto Rico. And I say that to give your listeners and you a sense that it is incredible the not only the diversity of activities that are going around in this country, but the amazing dedication of people like you, you know, who, who are who are invested in making a difference uh, for children and families. And invest it in a way that often doesn't result in a lot of money coming your way. Mm-hmm. You know, very often these are underfunded program efforts that are going on. But the spirit of the people, and it fits with the podcast I do, which is The Optimistic Advocate, it's just amazing to see in in spite of the incredible challenges that we as a nation face in funding quality prevention programs uh, for young children, um, Boy, people are still at it, you know, and they're pushing hard. So for the last, you know, 30 years at least, uh, I've been going around the country reviewing those programs. Then about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, we started the Children's Mental Health Network. And that came about because you would have people, let's take Vermont, for example, you know, you would have a core group of people in Burlington, right, Mm -hmm. who were part of one of these grants. Federal grants got really excited about let's make a difference for kids, right? And then the grant ends. Hmm. So, what do you do, Phil? You know, you're part of this yeah. amazing yeah. network of people, but then the federal funding runs out. And very often, what would happen is that things would die out. Those innovative program efforts uh, would fade away because there wasn't funding for it. So in uh two thousand and ten, maybe two thousand and nine, uh, we would have a national conference every year and there were a group of us that got together in a hotel room and said man this this is silly you know the, the feds are spending all this money on improving services and we're getting all excited and then our grant runs out, and then we all go away. you know where's the where's the learning that's taking place where's the stick-to-itiveness that's taking place? We need to do something about that." And so there were probably 90 people in the room and we're all kicking around on ideas. And, and, uh, me and, uh, my colleague, Pat Baker, uh, who's on my board, uh, now, um, she was really helpful in this process. We said we need to start a, a new advocacy organization, an organization that can help keep the attention on improving services Uh, for children and families. Great. That sounds wonderful. And then I said, what? Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I said, okay, if we're going to do this, we can't take any federal money because if we take federal money and let's say that federal government goes in a different direction in terms of what they're interested in supporting that doesn't fit with what we're doing, we're kind of stuck. We can't be advocates if we're beholden. And half the room said, are you nuts? <laughs> have you lost your mind? Because <laughs> there's, there's lots of training and technical assistance grants that that you can get, right, to help support federal government efforts. And I said, I get that. And um, boy, the Children's Mental Health Network would have been on easy street if we had just agreed to take federal money. But I said, we we can't, you know, we, we if, if we're going to stay true to our, values and principles that guide our work. We need to be free of federal government funding. Now, that doesn't mean that people who take federal government funding are any better or any worse. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, there's a huge, important role. I spent my life, my adult life, working with those kinds of programs. But for this advocacy organization that we wanted to be, we wanted to make sure that we were free and clear of anybody being able to say, you know... We'd really rather you don't write that, or we'd really rather you don't say that. We knew that had to be out of the equation. So, uh, so we finished the meeting, and I said, "Who's with me?" <laughs> and I don't know if you've heard the saying: "It's like Scott, we're behind you, we're way behind you." <laughs> <laughs> so, out of that room of ninety people, and there was a lot of excitement. But once it became clear that this was not about money. Hmm. You know, this was not about creating a new technical assistant structure uh, to provide service because plenty of those existed, right? And really good people uh, doing that work. This was not about competing with uh, a training entity. This was about being completely different. There were about six of us who were left. Hmm. So we went from 90 to six. And of those six, there were three that really said, "Let's let's do this." Now, people don't like to hear that. Uh, it's a ama- it's Phil. It's amazing the number of people who I hear from who will uh, tell me they started the children's mental health, <laughs> where, that's right. know, and that's okay. You know, it's it's just part of what we were faced with. But we had a very small group to start, and then people started coming back. They kind of had to get. Used to the idea that this was going to look very, very different, mm. so we, you know, we we didn't charge a fee. There's no membership fee. Uh, we uh, thrive on the concept of collective voice, and the, really, the idea is to create an online forum where people can come together from all walks of life, all across the country, but who have a shared interest in improving services for families. It's that simple. It's actually a pretty simple concept. It's not a money-making concept, but it's a simple concept. And it but it Phil, it was the spirit of look, we're all doing important work, you know, there and there's so much that people have to offer, but they don't have a way to share that. You know, it's like high five, you know, you know, you know, you need to be looking for ways to share the good work that you're doing. That's what we thrive on. We thrive on people uh letting us know what they're doing that's effective that's working in communities and then we try to promote that as best we can and you know that really has been my passion uh, for the last 12 13 years is is sharing that collective voice not me it's not scott you know it's it, it, i mean I'm a facilitator but it's the voice and the wisdom of people all around the country. And then in combination with that, we partner with the university, well we have partnered with the University of South Florida for the last 10, 11 years or so to hold a national research conference where we bring together researchers who are focused on learning about what works in terms of serving the needs of families. Now, the pandemic kind of squashed that pretty hard. Our our 33rd annual conference was scheduled for March, which we had to cancel and we've made the decision to cancel the 2021 conference because you know we're we're just not ready yeah. to I don't think to come back together however virtual man we're we're, yeah. we're we're holding um learning sessions online virtual that are all free everything we do is free we don't charge for anything and if there's if there's something that just warms my heart to no end it's when we I mean we have some of the most prominent researchers in the country who are willing, they, they'll call up and they'll say, Scott, we want to do a webinar. And, and it's such a beautiful thing. And I, what I want people to come away with is that so many um, incredibly knowledgeable people who are starved for an opportunity to share their information. and And, and that's what does my heart good about uh, even in this most challenging time there are great people doing great work, looking for ways to share it, and that's part of what we try to do at the Children's Mental Health Network.
0: I think I think you you said a few things, and I was just noting them as as you were saying them, which really struck me. Um, one is that you're passionate. You mentioned your passion, and I think that that is inherent in both the way that you speak, but also in the work that you do. It's a it's a it's a selfless act to often give freely. And I think that sometimes we find that a lot of educators are you hold on. You hold on to your information as if it's going to serve you in some way. And I think that what we do at High Five also, we are a learning center. Our entire mission is about education. And education has to be freely given. It has to be shared for it to have any power. Now, we're fortunate by giving off free information, that occasionally it brings us in clients. And right. that's that's the benefit of that. But if we continuously hold it, yeah. um, I, I think for us in the experiential education field, and I've referenced this in other episodes, that we are an incredibly sharing community. When someone has an idea or something or an uh, I, they share it. You know, I was at a conference and we were talking about uh, one's particular topic and it was a competitor organization, but they said, you know who does this the best? high five does this the best go with them it wasn't so it never felt like people are trying to like we're all comp- competitors working against this very limited market yes. we can't for us we work predominantly in the northeast of the u.s we does i was at a, um, a uh, conference in uh, california palm springs and it was a really wonderful conference about after school care and someone asked said Phil, we'd love to bring you out. And I said, unfortunately, you know, we stay in the Northeast. You're not going to pay for the airfare for me to come over. However, I know this organization in your region that works really well. I vouch for them. Go them. And so it doesn't bring us business, but what it does is it excels our reputation to be this sharing community. And I think that that's super important.
1: It's so important. And Phil, especially now, I mean, the, 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 probably the most prominent question that i'm getting now from our readers uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, uh we send out a weekly newsletter called friday update uh is what can we be doing with our young you know elementary school junior high school kids during this mm-hmm. pandemic i mean mm-hmm. and, and especially those who have special needs right what, what you know what mm-hmm. the whole structure so programs like yours I mean this is this is where I get excited is when someone mm-hmm. like you shares a resource or says hey we're doing this and then I've got a reader in in eastern part of Oregon right mm-hmm. who will write in and said oh and then there'll be an elementary school teacher and they'll say oh my god this is fabulous I can use that so that Mm -hmm. right there that does two things one for me on a human to human level it's like yes that's why i do this that's why i do this so that teacher in eastern oregon who has no access to resources right Mm -hmm. and feels like they're on an island and then you were in the midst of a pandemic is trying to think what can she do she reads an example of maybe a link to something that you're doing maybe she doesn't Mm -hmm. take the whole program or whatever takes an idea Okay, so that's the first thing it does. It, but then the other thing it does, it enhances the richness of the repository of expertise, and suddenly high five is part of that repository,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and people are always think because you know this pandemic is going to be over, we're gonna we're gonna get through this, but what are we learning, and who are the who are the passionate people who are continuing to work to make a difference in the midst of this and, and what are we learning from them? And then that see the blessings come back tenfold. Oh yeah. Tenfold. Tenfold. Yeah. Phil, I'm telling you, the work you guys are doing, people are starved for information mm-hmm. on just what they can do. No, I can't bring you out, Phil, but my God, what do I, you know, is there anything mm-hmm. that I can create, you know, uh for my students, uh that could help get us through this.
0: And then someone else you mentioned, which is exactly tied in, you said you quoted a saying yourself as a facilitator. Yeah. So for us, what we, you know, we don't teach people to be Necessarily, educators. We teach people to be facilitators, yes. experiential facilitators, because "facile" means to make easy. Yes. So, as a facilitator, our job, our task is to make things easy. That's in in your work, making it easy for people to get resources. That's- in our work, the same notion. How can we make things easier for other people? Yes. And in terms of working with youth, how do we facilitate incredible conversation that is rich and also leads to stuff? But we're breaking we're pulling the barriers down i think that there are just so many barriers i was in a webinar that said if when students walk into a classroom they leave large percentages of themselves at the door they don't feel that there's a safe space to be their true full whole self and so as a facilitator it's our task our job to take those barriers down and allow the opportunity for people to have rich discussion that's meaningful You know, uh, there's the the joke that there's that one question that everyone asks that gets zero answers, and it's how are you? Because we put this – we say the phrase, but we're not – that's rhetorical. But also, no one's honest about how they respond, and people don't want to receive it. I think we put up all these barriers, and um, facilitation is the key, I think, making stuff easier. And it's awesome that you are saying this outside of necessary experiential education. I'm hearing someone else use the word facilitator. That brings me joy.
1: It is so important because – Well, I would see this, and, and, you know, this is a learned thing. I mean, I'll tell you uh, uh, my own learning curve about being the expert to being the facilitator. Um, (laughs) It was was the late 80s, I guess. And I had uh, written a curriculum, collaborated on it with another colleague. Uh, It was a suicide uh, prevention curriculum, and and, and Mm -hmm. it was – how you could steps to take to talk somebody down you, you, who was actively suicidal, right? Okay, so in this small bubble that I worked in, it became really popular. And I started going around the country training. <laughs> I was 30. I don't know how old I maybe a little bit older, you know, but I was the man. And I remember and in a terrible tragedy, uh, um uh, there was a suicide in a training center in Hawaii. And I Fly out there and I'm just gonna make this big impression. And I get off the plane. I'm wearing a suit. I'm wearing suit. <laughs> I'm wearing a suit. And for all your listeners who are from the island, they're already laughing. And the guy who picked me up, you you would think that I would have sort of processed this, but I didn't because I was the man. You know, I was the expert. That's mm-hmm. why I'm real passionate about not being the expert. I get off the plane and he looks at me. We do our introduction, really nice guy. He says, Scott. He says there's only two kind of people who wear suits. <laughs> he said bankers and FBI agents. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> that I was know. the first lesson. So, so all right, but I'm still the man, right? So we go ready, we go over to the, the training center, and this particular <laughs> this particular training center was run by primarily um, uh, Japanese men. It just happened to be the 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 cultural mix of the uh, mm-hmm. the the head of it um, was Japanese. So culturally, right? I'm so clueless, Phil. I am mm-hmm. so clueless, and I approached this training, and I'm doing it like I would be doing a training in North Carolina, not understanding the importance of respect to elders and and you know deference and just uh, mm-hmm. yes, totally. You know, just lose it. So I come over. So the training went okay, you know, and I think they just kind of thought I was humorous, you know, and it's like, but afterwards, the person who brought me back, they said, Scott, you know, you have a lot to learn. And I did, and I did. And then I went to, during that same period of time, I went out to, uh, I was part of a, once again, I'm the man, Phil, part of a group of 16 people from around the country who were selected to write this curriculum on, on, Helping families and professionals talk to each other. This is in the early days of the family movement. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was out of Portland state university and I flew to the airport and I'm on the van going to the university and there's a woman on the van. And we just start talking. We realize, Oh my God, she's one of the 16. And, you know, and, and we're talking and I proceed to give her my entire resume. She looks at me and I'm talking and talking, you know, and I finally I had to breathe, right? So allowed a pause and she looked at me and she said, Darling, I got shoes older than you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Knocks you right down.
1: You know, I, I, I wanted to share that story with you because mm. it's real important because those were two examples of where I was very fortunate and that the people who had to knock me down a peg did so with love. Mm. You know I mean, they could have just completely blown me off, but they did mm-hmm. with love. And to your listeners, I would say, especially if you're thinking that you're the man or you're the woman or whatever, you know, and, mm-hmm. it, and it all ties back to the role of facilitator. Is that if you go in thinking you're the man, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to see the change. And oh, and yeah. and I had to learn that, you know, I had. And I, <laughs> So yeah. we, we've laughed about it a lot over the years, but I, I am so grateful I'm especially grateful to the woman in the van who I mean just it was so it was so perfect.
0: I think that's you know it, it ties in perfectly to a book that've we've, we've read, and I have I believe I may have referenced this before in this podcast, but a book called Legacy. The concept is it follows uh, the New Zealand All Blacks, the rugby team. Yeah. So very successful sports team, and often people will people be like, "Oh, it's a it's a book about sport." Not not really. It's actually a um, a leadership book that's about the business of life. It teaches the business of life, and I love that phrasing, the business of life. Yeah. But there's a notion in it called sweep the sheds, and it's yeah. it's perfectly aligned with what you you're suggesting, in that no one on that team. Is ever bigger than anyone else in that team, so no one's too big to do the little tasks that need to be done.
1: Especially now, uh, uh, and I have to fight this. I think we all have to fight this. But when people will say, "Scott, I need an answer," I really need, just just tell us what to do. And my response is often, "Well, let's talk about it," you know, and, and because the answer is going to look different, you know, wherever you are. <laughs> And, uh, it's easy to get caught up in the, I've got to have the answer. You know, you don't have to have the answer, but if you can have a process for engagement, if you can have a process for helping people sort through their own thoughts and feelings. I mean, we're seeing this a lot with, with all that's going on with black lives matters right now and and how that ties in with the whole topic of racial injustice and, uh, You know, it's about talking. It's about dialogue. And 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 again, I go back to for the children's mental health network, collective voice. I keep going back to collective voice. And what is collective voice? It's everyone honoring and respecting and sharing, you know, opinions, belief to work towards a solution. So I'm thrilled to hear that you guys do that.
0: You, you referenced earlier on um, uh, just how many you were in the review process for a lot of programs. Sure. What were ones that you saw as a snapshot of success? Ones that really worked? I think
1: the programs that 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 I've seen that that I felt were really successful were the ones, frankly, that truly listened to the voices of youth and families. And I don't mean in a, mm. in just a top down, you know, but those programs that were able to incorporate family voice and youth voice authentically into their decision-making structure. Those are the ones that as far as I'm concerned, you know, really we're doing a good job and that's hard to do. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it should be done, but it, it is hard to do, especially when you have entrenched systems or you might have a, county government structure that, you know, it's not as easy to incorporate family voice. But I, I was uh, talking with a colleague this morning, and it's been interesting to see. So the the family movement in children's mental health, and there's always a family movement, you know, wherever we are along in life. But in, in the arc of my life, uh, back in the 80s, uh, you had, uh, and I thought this person framed it really well. She said, you know, the first wave of Family Advocates, she said it was like watching, you see the movie 300? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like, ah, that kind of Mm hard-charging, you know, storm the best deal kind of approach, right? And and that was important because there was no voice before that, right? And so they were pushing hard. And then you have the second wave, which is the people who get incorporated into the structure. So Phil, okay, he's been driving me crazy hollering about what we're not doing. Here I've got a job for you. But the danger with that second wave was that so many family organizations and I was involved with a lot of them and so I got to witness this got co-opted by government structures. Yeah, I don't think out of uh, a malicious intent. It's just that, you know, you're suddenly absorbed into the structure of a county system and so you can't have that free voice like we have with the yeah. network, right? And then the the third wave of family involvement is those family leaders who are getting involved with organizational structures, but not just making it about them, but diffusing the voice so that it's coming from a lot of different directions. Um, Those organizations that are able to embrace that, uh, so that might mean you know, not only having families involved in in some of your executive decision making, but having them in leadership roles, um, mm. having youth involved in ways where they're truly able to um, take an idea and create something and own it, if you will. This is not easy stuff when you when you're dealing with entrenched systems. There there is a youth organization in Oregon. They're called Youth Era really encourage you to check them out you would love what they're doing mm-hmm. um youth-led organization very much focused on peer support in fact they just finished they're doing a training for back in your neck of the woods for oxford university they're they're researching in london uh and they're based in oregon but they're they're mm-hmm. doing part of a research project in london to help 16 year old peer-to-peer advocates find their voice and help the, and so, so it's it's Again, it's authenticity. You know, it's one thing to say, yes, we want to involve people. But what I would look for as a reviewer is so, how deeply embedded is that desire to involve families and youth? How deeply embedded is that in your organizational structure? Mm -hmm. And where is the fluidity and the freedom for that voice to really stand on its own? Uh, So it's not a tokenized. It's, it's, it's an easy answer and it's a complicated answer at the same time.
0: Yeah. We do a program called edger leadership. And, uh, in the summer months, it's, it's a high school led program where the teachers also come from, from their schools, but everyone's on the exact same level. No, everyone's a participant and there's no hierarchy system. And I think that for us, that's that same piece. Our our motto at high five is connect, empower, lead, be the example. And the, the connection is important. We always connect. That's connection before content is an experiential education mindset. Right. But then that next stage is is the empowerment piece, and I think that's exactly what you're suggesting. Absolutely. Giving the power over to someone to be able to freely make decisions for themselves and to help craft a, uh, an inv- a, a situation which is beneficial to all parties. I think that – it's an interesting thing. I think that what we fight against sometimes is that mindset, paternal or maternal instinct of educators in the teaching worlds, that yeah. there there is that hierarchy. I have to protect. Yeah. And I'm doing it over well intention. It's not evil maliciousness that I'm controlling this child, yeah. but protecting them. But what it does is restrict their voice and doesn't allow them to truly advocate.
1: Back in, uh, oh, I'm, I'm not going to get the year right, but there was a, a school shooting and uh and a person died and a lot of trauma in the community and so there was all this community response right this community mobilization what do we do what do we do and youth era offered uh kept offering their services but you know this youth organization so they, they weren't getting much traction that way um so what they did, they decided that, and, and, and this comes from talking to the young people. So I want you to picture this horrific shooting happened right at the end of the school year. Okay. So you have that happen. You have all the community assessments and experts coming in, all well-intentioned and probably doing some good work, you know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But you got this school year coming up. You know, what happens in the fall when these kids have to go back to school? And the last thing they experienced was this horror, you know, and 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 that is a trauma that wasn't being addressed. So youth era, again, these are young people, you know, coming together, they said, We need to have a celebration of the building. Because it's the building that they're gonna be going back to. And mm-hmm. it's the building that holds these connotations of horror and trauma. What can we do to help make that building more inviting and more comfortable? And, and so they had this event where they um, they had a relationship with Google and they got the virtual glasses. They had this fun event on the campus of the school, this summer summertime, which allowed students to re-engage with the building. Now, that was something nobody had thought of. Mm. And it was hugely beneficial and then they have gone on from that one experience um, to uh act as consultants for schools all over the country who unfortunately have been in situations you know with school shootings but it's that so if as a reviewer that's what i'm looking for i'm looking for how how are you really engaging mm-hmm. so the school took a chance and said yes we want to invite you in and and they came up with a programming idea that never would have been thought of and it was thought of in any of the community forums. It's that ability to stretch yourself. And again, like you were saying, is not think of yourself as the expert necessarily or the one with the golden answer, but to make yourself available to options, that things like this come up You know that nobody had ever thought of. And it's brilliant, mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant. The interviews with the kids, who had gone to this event was just it was just really really heartwarming to see.
0: Hmm. I find that a lot of people um, uh, undervalue or underestimate the the ability to be for kids to be adaptable oh yeah to, to things and and also to be responsible. Yeah. You know, we we work with youth very often who you know in younger younger ages and we have very complex cost questions. And we'll get teachers that say Wow, those kids just sat there for half an hour and engaged in conversation. As if it was a completely yeah. Una- yeah. that's impossible. How you had them yeah. sitting and listening <laughs> and talking for half yeah. an hour. Yeah. And I and I think about that in the world that we're currently in right now, and I'm tired into to mask wearing as an example. Yeah. That my daughter's four years old. Yeah. And the number of times I've been told that my daughter could not possibly keep a mask on. and i and i'm like no i feel like she constantly can and i think that it's i think that adults we fall back on this assumption that kids aren't able to adapt and in fact it's probably us adults who are the less flexible and to be able to adapt Mm -hmm. to the current existing times than all of our kids and we should have learned a lesson from them and continue to learn from them yeah in their adaptability and flexibility
1: so true so true and that that's what i mean you know phil i i I have the best job in the world because (laughs) I get to hear examples of that all the time. And it's Mm. just, he just makes you go, we can do this. You know, Mm. we we can do this. Is our system perfect? Not even close. You know, it is so problematic, but you just see these examples of, of innovation uh, and great work taking place all over the country. And that that's what fuels me again, collective voice, is the for me is the answer? You know, it's, it, it's, it's the more we can promote and encourage that kind of dialogue, the better off we'll be.
0: from From your perspective, it, it, focusing on children's mental health and family mental health, what are you nervous about right now with the current times that we're in? I, in oh, terms a lot, of, of, a
1: lot of nervous. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's so. Uh, I'm really nervous about the safety net that that we have for kids because we, we so we have the uh, you know what, and this is a good thing. The the increased attention and focus on the disparities in our country and and the inequalities, but we also have a pandemic. We have um, state and local um, uh, coffers that are drying up. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the first, as you well know, the first thing to go is these kinds of prevent prevention services for kids. I'm real nervous about that. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that, uh, you know, we're all as a, as a country, we're all we're, we're kind of reeling. Right. You know, we haven't fallen, but we're reeling is this one 2 punch, you know, with mm-hmm. the pandemic and with the, uh, the racial injustice um, uh important conversation that's taking place, but this hidden element of of declining budgets, it's coming, Phil. I mean, you yeah. know, there and and what will that mean? It everything from food assistance programs to I mean it's just the basics, you know, extracurricular programs, after school programs. I mean we're focusing on what benefits kids, right? I right. I worry about those enrichment opportunities going away and being raised that that that's what keeps me up at, at night uh, so it's it, you know it's I mean it was already well we'll just use an example it's already bad if you're uh, a school psychologist and you know you've got a caseload of 300 or 600 people which is ridiculous to begin with but maybe there was an after-school program. Maybe there was some kind of enrichment thing. And now, if, if all that enrichment stuff goes away, mm-hmm. you know, I, I got an email. for. I just broke my heart. I got an email from a mom the other day, and and she said, you know, my son's on the spectrum, right? And um, we're here at home. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. You know, I'm, I'm really struggling with, and the response from the from the school is do the best you can, right? As the pandemic continues, and I think we're in, you know, for the long haul is like, what are the supports that might've, let's not even deal with the question if the supports were good before (laughs) the pandemic, but are those even going to be available? Right? I'm not sure they are. Yeah. that's what I so thats yes, what I worry about yeah, yeah. I hate to be a downer but I no, that's I, what I worry about
0: um, I, I think that there's been moments where I my hope is that if we try to flip things on the positive that we as a society are being far more aware of the all of the benefits that schools provide yeah. students yeah. beyond education, Right. because they are a safe space. Right. They're they're essentially counselors and 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 childcare facilities and all of these positions of safety. They're often there's adult peers that they have who look up up to them and role model behaviors, and they just and now we don't have that. Right. And so you know, I in experiential education we have this thing called the challenge zones, and it's essentially this. Uh, Bullseye image that's the center is comfort. This is our comfort zone, and people refer to pushing people out, which we don't like that terminology. I think it's about encouraging people to step out themselves, yeah. but then there's a growth zone outside of that. But then right on the barrier, there's the panic zone. And I, for me, I find that I think most people at the moment are right teetering on the edge of panic, yeah, and it's yeah. and it's yeah. it's Uh, there's a lot of responsibility, I think, that educators have moving forwards to try to bring people away from the brink of panic. From your perspective, what what do you think are some potentially key takeaways or put it it seems too easy to say tips but like from your from your mindset that you think all educators need to be aware of moving forward
1: I, i'll share i want to share a couple of things with you but one, one is on that on that question self i think self-care right now is the most important thing so I send out a newsletter every friday right goes to our to our readers and i always start the newsletter with a, a music video and it, and i'll just go through i'm a big music freak you know and, and i'll find something and i typically don't do top 40 or anything like that because it's not where my tastes are but it doesn't matter i do lots of different musical genres but i try to tie it into what's going on right what's happening just and i am finding now this is a very unscientific experiment phil but i am finding that during the pandemic i am getting passionate responses from readers who said i listened to that you know, or I watched that YouTube video and oh my God, that song just really spoke to me. And, you know, and so what does that tell you? I mean, people are hurting, you know, and, and uh, people in our work who feel even an increased sense of responsibility because it's not only for them and for their families, but for the fam- like the example I mentioned about the mom with the autistic, you know, teachers hurting, you know, and uh, my neighbor's a teacher and it's like, you know, with ESL kids, I mean, what you know, got a language barrier on top of now suddenly have to be on Zoom, right? You know what? Um, so, but if you can't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to help and contribute. And uh, and I think there's a tendency, and I know I suffer from this the times to, to to be outward directed, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, self care, frankly, is critical right now. Uh, with the isolation that people are feeling with the lack of connection uh as as much as we tease about zoom calls uh it's interesting just for myself so ordinarily when i would have a phone call with you i do it all on zoom now just to be able to see somebody and connect you know yeah. and and uh, see a reaction so uh, i'll keep it real simple for your listeners self care you know what are they doing to take care of themselves uh you know um so that they can, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever it might be. Um, but the other thing I'll say is the uh, tips is that is that keep looking there. I don't know, are you familiar with the PAX Good Behavior Game? I don't know if that's something mm-hmm. to that be in your world, um, but it's focused. It, it's a great early intervention resource. And so I just mentioned that one of my fears is what the schools will not have when. We get through this due to funding and resources, and yet with PAX, the uh, founder of PAX is, uh, is on our advice. He's our science advisor, uh, and, and he- this program is all over the world. It's simple, it's easy, and they do it in elementary schools, and you can do it with families at home. My point is this: is that more? I think now several states are recognizing that they need to do something, so their departments of education are looking at bringing in. And it doesn't have to be PACS, but programs like PACS. Before the pandemic, this is going to sound strange, but I want you to hang in there with me. Before the pandemic, might have written off something like PACS or some kind of early intervention effort. Maybe some of the things you do might have written them off as fluff, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see some recognition that, oh gee, maybe the Surgeon General's report from a couple of years ago was correct when it said that prevention is vital, you know, to improving mental health. I got hate mail the other day from somebody because we encourage people to um, support an effort uh, uh, with Congress to get them to continue funding for the WHO because of the relation to mental health, right? Mm. I think a lot of people say there is no relation, but there is, you know, but it's but in, in a way, these difficult conversations, in some cases, are resulting in people going, maybe we should rethink that. So when you have states like Texas and Arizona looking at how they can improve their education system, how they can put in more prevention, that's big. So oh, yeah. so I start you off with saying, I'm really worried about all of this. No. But I also want to say, but there are examples of where people are starting to connect the dots.
0: For the longest time, I've said um, adventure education, experiential education, have been seen as pseudo education. It's that exact fluff that you see where people will say, all right, we'll do this team building thing. And they always put air quotes and they're just (laughs) doing it for the sake of doing it. And they throw it in. But I think now, you know, we've hit this peak where, you know, I was speaking to a principal recently. He said, he was an elementary school principal. But he said, I think the start of the new year for us is not going to focus on, We've got to hit these tests or we've got to make sure the kids can read this or add these and subtract. Yeah. It's about how the kids connect uh, and how they have conversations. Beautiful. And it, yeah, and I think that yeah. for, for me, I was beautiful. like, this is exactly what we have been shouting yeah. for the longest time. Yes. And I think that people are realizing because their kids haven't been connected, they've all been separated, that they need it. And I think your self care thing is also so important that you mentioned that because I think more so than just giving themselves care what it does is it role models that behavior yeah. to everyone they interact with. Absolutely. We need to be thinking about how we're looking after ourselves yeah. and owning it. Yes. Yeah. You know, we I always teach authenticity in the facilitation that I teach. I think that's a powerful tool that we all possess mm-hmm. is the ability to be able to be authentic mm-hmm. and own things that when we when we when we don't like I was watching um, and I was having my daughter's four, and we were watching stuff. It was the CNN Sesame Street, oh, yeah, um, talk yeah. on um, oh, yeah. Uh, racism, yeah. yeah. And I spent a large part of it crying, yeah. And my daughter had said, Dad, why are you crying? Yeah, and at first I got embarrassed, but then I realized actually, I'm okay with my daughter seeing me cry. I right. think that that is a powerful statement, and it role models a behavior that I oh. that emotion is we should be vulnerable, excuse and me, it's okay,
1: gives me chills just listening, yeah, yeah.
0: But I, but I, I, find that you know I think we're at a, we are at a turning point. I'd yeah. hope yeah. with mental health, but also the work that I do because it is so unique, so tied together with yeah. mental health, that I think that we are getting to a point where people will be able to accurately and advocate for things that they're experiencing and feeling without the stigma. Well, and here's um, the thing:
1: if if and, and I agree with you, we we are at that point, but we have to be so vigilant. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I mm-hmm. and we we it's kind of like all right, we're riding this wave and it's a rough wave, but be Mm -hmm. ready because out of this is going to come that just kind of, just like what we're seeing with black lives matter out of this is coming like, Oh, you know, whether it's restructuring the budgets of the police in in a community, um, removing the Confederate flag in Mississippi or, you Mm -hmm. know, NASCAR saying, you know, whatever, there are these moments where, change is happening and whether you agree with all of it or don't agree with all of it the point is it's it's you know it's it's bubbling and change is going to happen so if you're an advocate for positive change and for like the things you're doing and focusing on young people and experiential learning be ready got to be vigilant got to be ready to come forward with a good idea
0: and I think as well, we need to all be okay with us making some errors along the way, because yeah. I think that we have to be vigilant, exactly as you stated. And I, we shouldn't aim for this perfect end result. We yeah. just have to be consistently doing the work. Um And, and that's going to, create change if we keep moving forward with that
1: unless you're a banker or an fbi agent getting off the plane <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah the lessons we've learned is self-care yeah. and don't wear a suit in hawaii <laughs>
1: <That's> so funny.
0: <laughs> so, so scott how do people find out about the children's mental health network and also connect with yourself really
1: the cmhnetwork.org and just go there and you can connect with me there. And uh, we'd, we'd love to have you uh, sign up for Friday update and get it, get a, That's the best way to get a feel for what we do and, and what we mm. talk about. Yeah. So real easy. We'd love to have you and check out the optimistic advocate.com. That's where the podcast is. Or so you can get it on both places, but
0: uh, a, a shout out to you, Scott, for the optimistic advocate. I've listened to a few episodes and I've, yeah. you know, I think it ties so wonderfully into our work and I wouldn't have known about it had I not connected with you. So I once again, the, the power of connection it's really um, is is super important continue yeah. the listeners out there especially if you want to work in this industry continue to put yourself out there into positions where you connect i had no idea what i was going to get myself in for with this podcasting thing i'm still sort of not sure but what is really nice about it is i've been able to connect with scott and this is a connection i didn't have prior to this whole start so excellent thanks phil yeah thank you so much all right brother bye bye mm-hmm.
1: To go play camp.
0: And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try.
1: Thanks for giving. I think a pasta guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs>